Go ahead and open up your Bible to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 30 is where we will be. If you didn't bring a Bible with you or if you don't own one, there's a black hardback either under that chair or around you somewhere. Uh, and uh, if you have a nice neighbor, maybe they'll share their Bible with you for a moment. Um, we are in chapter 30. We've been working through Isaiah. Let me kind of give you a little heads up of what's uh, in the next couple weeks. Um, <clears throat> next week, my, my family and I will be out of town, and so um, Jeremy will be filling in that week. And then the, the week after that, uh, I've been asked to preach at another church in town, at Mike Rose's church, and uh, on the 30th. And so Stephen will fill the pulpit here for that. So um, if you'll be kind of praying about these next few weeks, but after the end uh, of this month, we'll, we'll take a break from Isaiah, and some of you are probably like, oh, whew, and some of you hopefully are like, oh, right? Okay, well, I had like one. Uh, so <clears throat> anyways, we'll, we'll probably get back into Isaiah at the beginning of next year, all right? We, I have some other things planned for the end of this year, and that's kind of where we'll be going to kind of round out the year. Uh, at the year. Uh, but this morning, I want to talk about uh, the, the title for my sermon comes out of verse 18 of this chapter, and it is, Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Uh, 18 is kind of a hinge pin verse. Uh, we'll get to that in just a moment, uh, but let me kind of start with some other thoughts here. Uh, and I want to start with this thought, that God is concerned about your plans. God is concerned about your intentions. Those two things are true. He is concerned about your plans and He is concerned about your intentions behind your plans. And this is all fitting into the context of chapter 30 here. One of the most common questions that I think Christians ask is about God's will for their life. How many of you have asked yourself that question or asked somebody else that question? What is God's will for my life? Probably most of us have had that thought at some point. Maybe you're in that position even this morning. And that question sometimes leads to spiritual paralysis where you, you don't know what to do because you don't feel as though you have any kind of clarity of what God wants from you. And because of that, it then also leads to emotional and sometimes mental paralysis as well, where you're just stuck. You're just stuck. And sometimes people are left in this position not really doing anything because they're, they're searching for God's will. What does God want? What is, what is God's direction for me? And in that, they feel stuck and they feel in this rut and they don't go anywhere. They don't do anything so some people are seeking God's will to, to solve this stuck problem. I'm stuck. I need to get out of this. How does this happen? Now, sometimes people are wanting to know the will of God because they are scared. Inwardly, they play the coward, and they ask God to reveal to them what's going to happen next so that they can avoid any kind of danger, any kind of peril, any kind of, of issue or trouble that might come up. And this is why they ask, what is God's will? What is God's direction? What is God's plan? Not because you really want to know. What you really want to know is avoiding things, avoiding these issues. They don't really want to face anything that might cause discomfort or danger, so they pray, Lord, tell me what to do. But the intention behind that is, help me avoid anything hard. Usually, in Scripture, we find that whenever God reveals His plans, with those plans come difficulty and danger. 
almost 100% of the time, this is what you'll find. Sometimes God reveals his plan without even revealing the details of the plan, which then creates the greatest fear of all, which is the fear of the unknown. Aren't we terrified of that? What I don't know, what I haven't experienced. We have story after story and person after person in the Scripture for us to examine people taking a risk for God and that that risk was always worth it. And with those risks comes the feelings of, in the Scriptures, we see this, we see insecurities, we see it being unsafe, we see it being unwise, we see it as being improbable. That's not likely. But God, who is over all, and as a new commercial has deemed it, He's never not working, He has a perfect plan. And that perfect plan will never change no matter the intentions or the plans of humans. As one author has put it, God doesn't take risk, so we can. He doesn't take a risk, but we can. And what does it mean for us to take a risk for God? It means that we're trusting Him. So, so I want to start this morning with a question of how do you pray? We just spent some time this morning in prayer. Is your reoccurring prayer focused on avoidance of suffering? Is the reoccurring prayer that you have, or types of prayers that you have, are they reoccurring in directions and intentions of avoiding danger? Do your prayers aim at God making everything nice and cozy for you? I would challenge you to evaluate your prayers in light of the Scripture this morning from Isaiah. Isaiah proves to us once again that God is a God who should be trusted with the future so we can stop pleading with Him to reveal the future to us because I do trust Him with it. We can trust that His will for our lives will lead us into trouble. It will lead us into danger. But what is also promised and what we also see from this chapter is that He never leaves His children to deal with these things on their own. Praise God. So what we're going to find from this chapter is kind of three sections, and your, your Bible might break this up in different ways, and this is kind of one of my struggles of this week of how, how do we structure this this morning, outline this, but I'm just going to simply do it in three ways. The first being, the first section, 1 through 17, the rebellious children. Rebellious children. The second section we'll see, 18 through 26, is our gracious Lord. And then the last section we will see is the fury of God in verses 27 through 33. So let's go look at the first section, the first verse of this chapter. And it says this in Isaiah 30, verse 1, Ah, stubborn, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. The people here are called stubborn, or maybe your translation uses a different word. The ESV used the word stubborn, but maybe your translation used the word rebellious. It can be translated either way uh, from the Hebrew. And what does it mean to be stubborn or rebellious? Uh, what, what, is, 
I think we need to focus our minds around this first of all. As, as we, again, read Scripture sometimes, we don't really feel the impact of it. Uh, I want you to feel this this morning. Sometimes people call themselves stubborn like it's a badge of honor, right? Maybe you know that person. Like, well, I'm just a stubborn individual. And then they treat that like this is such a, a great characteristic to have in their life, and that they're so well known for being stubborn, and everybody should already know that. But I would say if this person knew what the Scriptures had to say about that kind of spirit, that kind of stubbornness, they wouldn't talk that way because the Scriptures condemn a rebellious spirit or a stubbornness of heart. What causes stubbornness? And maybe you would hear this in response, well, my dad was and my, my grandfather was and the, all the way back to my quadruple great-grandfather. They were all stubborn individuals and so generationally I'm going to be stubborn. I'm from a long line of stubborn, rebellious individuals, which is not really untrue, but this is not the reason. Why are you stubborn? Well, it's not because this is a generational thing that's been passed down to you. It is your own doing. You are the cause of the stubbornness. Your rebellious spirit and stubbornness is not generational. It actually originates in you. It's your own heart. You're stubborn because you believe you are God. What? You believe that you're God and that people need to submit to your will and your ways. This is called idolatry. And this kind of idolatry it is a great wickedness against God and against people. And so should we wear the badge of stubbornness around no. Being stubborn is not something that Christians should be known for. This is not how we should be viewed or how we should ever be perceived. We should not be known as this. We should be a, a people that is far from rebellion. Far from rebellion in the realm of earthly authorities or toward our neighbors or toward our spouses even. Scriptures teach us to have a humble and submissive spirit always looking for ways to, to serve others and to not serve ourselves. And the roots of rebelliousness and stubbornness, what is the root cause of all of that? Pride. That's it. So from the very start of this word to Judah, again by Isaiah, they are given a label this label of stubbornness or rebellion, and this is meant to chastise them, to awaken them to the reality of what's really true about who they are. And then what happens here is that God goes on to explain to them why they should be chastised. And there's, there's three reasons in this one verse. Three reasons. Look at the first one. As the next line says, who carry out a plan but not mine. God does not bless our plans. He only blesses what He has set out to accomplish. That's what He blesses. But how often do we act this way where we set a plan for our life and then we pray that God would bless all that would happen? And again, we, sometimes we have this intention of, please, Lord, keep all the danger and all the things away from me that might get in the way and really dis discourage me and discomfort me. Where should our plans start? Well, James tells us an answer here in chapter 4, 13 through 17. Very familiar verses. You know these. James says in verse uh, 
13 of chapter 4, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade to make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So the way that you should make your plans or go about making your plans for your life should be in humble submission to the Lord's plans. What does He want? What does God desire? This is the basis for all of the other decisions which we make. We start with what has He told me to do in His Word? What has He communicated to me of how to walk in obedience? And by His grace, you have 66 books that direct you in that path. James tells us not to be stubborn towards God's will, but consciously, that means purposely, we are obeying and praying for His will to be done in our lives. This is not, it's not just going to happen to you like, I don't know, I fell into obedience. No, you have to walk in obedience. I would summarize James's instruction as living open-handed before God. And, and, and what I mean by that is this idea where the things of this life are always worth taking a risk with for, for the sake of God's plans. Because God has told you to do something. And so the things which you have in this life, you live open-handed with them before God. You present them to Him as, I am submissive with all of these things, God. So let me ask you the question, what are the things that you are gripping tightly to? What are the things that you're white-knuckling before God? Could it be, I don't know, your family? No, no God, that's... I want good things for them, but I can't, I can't release them to you completely, fully. And you won't pray those prayers of risk with your family. Or, or maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's a relationship. Or Christian, maybe it's your theology. You're holding so tightly to something and you just won't let that thing go. We must constantly be evaluating whether we are trying to carry out our plans or God's. Is my prayers directed toward what I really want or what does God really want? And then we will discover that we are trying to, to make our plans work. And, and whenever we do discover that, we must humbly submit them to God with openness, this open-handedness, and then we ask for forgiveness. We repent. So, so don't be stubborn with your plans. The plans which you have, the intentions that you have, don't be stubborn with them. A second thing we learn here of why they're chastised in the same verse, look at the next line, who make an alliance but not of my spirit. Now this alliance that Judah is making, they're making with Egypt. This has been talked about before, condemned before. But what is behind the alliance? Why are, why are they making this alliance? Well, it's an attempt at self-salvation, which again, Isaiah has condemned repeatedly, this idea of trying to save yourself. 
Now, what has God consistently been telling them? He's been saying, in a sense, trust me. Make an alliance with me. And if you do this, you will be saved. But they don't do this. Because they are only seeing the physical world that is around them, where they see the armies coming, they, they hear the rumors, they see all these things happening, and so they view all of the physical world by the human perspective, man's perspective. And this leads them to deny the spiritual world that is also happening around them. This happens to all of us, doesn't it? We do this. We're guilty of this. We see all the problems of life, and we start to, to make our plans and make alliances so that we can get out of the problem. And we start calculating things out. Okay, if I do this and I do that, and then, and then I, I structure things this way, then I'll be free. And all the while, we have put God on a sideline thinking, well, when it gets real tough, I'll put you in the game. How silly is that? Our plans, our alliances... They fail because they're centered upon us. They're centered upon others. They deny God's involvement. They reject His explicit calls to trust Him. It's foolishness for us to do such a thing. And why are we not trusting the most trustworthy one? And why do we trust the most untrustworthy one? Meaning ourselves. His plans are good. Always and forever, they're good. So our attempts to figure out on our own what will happen, what should happen, they're going to fail. They do not align with God's will. A third thing we see of why they're chastised is, is that they may add sin to sin. That they may add sin to sin. Now, when we, we don't plan our life by God's plans and we start to create our own saviors or, or attempt to save ourselves in some way, this is exactly what this verse is saying. This is adding sin to sin. So why should Judah be chastised? Because their sins are being compounded by their persistent rejection of God. How often is it that we commit one sin and then that sin leads to many, many other sins and it's, it's like this dirty snowball rolling down the hill, gaining more and more and more sin. These sins need dealt with because these sins are creating more and more distance between us and God and us and everyone else. And by committing the sin of creating their own plans, avoiding God's plan, they are they're compounding the sin that's taking place in their life. The sin that is making them guilty before God. Now in verse 9, they're called rebellious again. Look at verse 9 through 11. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. They had an unteachable impatience with God's Word. How was their stubbornness, their sin being added to sin is because they were impatient with God's teaching. They viewed God's instructions as impractical and too demanding on them. 
which is the combination that develops into ingratitude and cynicism toward God. These people didn't want to hear from a real prophet of God like Isaiah or really anyone who else might challenge them with who God really is. They wanted smooth things, as it says in this verse. They wanted illusions spoken to them. Now, Paul writes about this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verses 3 and 4, where he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that's not me. Right? That's not me. And hopefully that is true, that that's not you. But let me address something that I think is subtle and also quite deceptive of what happens. Where people have thoughts or expressions of, well, I I want a preacher that speaks about the evils of blank. And, And you fill in the blank with many, many different things. Which is a way of saying that you want someone else's evil pointed out, and it is an evil that you don't likely do. So please, pastor, say something about that. That thing, this cultural thing, that thing, oh, I just hate it. And don't you think that people need to know how wicked these other people are? And they would also say, well, don't you think that it's destroying our community because we, we don't talk about it, we don't say something about it? This is the subtle slip into what Isaiah and James are warning us about. We need to stay focused upon what God has to say to us. Here's why. This chapter is addressing, yes, the nation of Judah. Yes, the nation of Judah. But Judah was claiming to be the people of God. Who, who have left their first love. They are the ones who needed confronted in their sins and in their despicable ways of rejecting God. They are guilty of this. What is destroying our communities? Well, what's destroying the community around us? It's the fact that church people don't act like church people. This is the problem. What's destroying our families is that fathers aren't displaying a love for the mother as Christ loves the church. What's destroying the next generation? It's not the public school system, but it's the fact that parents aren't teaching their children to take ownership for themselves and their sins and then display repentance to them. What needs to happen? in the pulpit is to confront the people of God with God. This is what the prophet is doing and the people hate him for it. If you want to see major changes in your church, in your family, in your community, in your country, then look at the changes that need to happen in you. The rebellion of this people It's layered. It's layered with reasons, and one of those reasons is their reasoning. They're too smart for God. We don't really need Him. It just wasn't plausible to trust God in this moment. Why do we need to trust Him? We got Egypt. Let's just go to Egypt. 
They had these other options. These were plausible options. Let's go do that. There's always some plausible reason to not trust God. And some of us are really, really good at finding those reasons. But listen, improbable situations are where God loves to display who He is. He loves to show Himself to be bigger, greater than those situations. It is where you really get to experience the presence of God. That risky, that risky thing that you were led to do by God is where you experience the goodness of God. This is what this rebellious people were doing. They, they rejected His goodness. They reasoned away why they didn't need to. They were the ones that needed to dress. They were stubborn of heart. They were rebellious of heart. Now, after this chastising of the people, of their stubbornness, of their rebellion, Isaiah then records for us, what is to be expected next? Now, this is interesting here, what happens in this chapter. Because what he then goes on to talk about in verses 18 through 26 is our gracious Lord. Now, in my mind, I was expecting like hellfire brimstone, right? Well, that's the end of this chapter. But right here is where I expected that. But that's not what, what Isaiah tells them. Look at verse 18. It says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Like I said, this is a turning point in the chapter, a hinge pin in the chapter. Now, what is it that the people did not want? They did not want to be confronted with who God was. Give us somebody else, give us some illusion. Don't give us God. But this is what Isaiah does. He brings them the true God. He confronts them with the one true God. And we are reminded here, I think, of a few things about God in this section. And even right in this one verse, I think we're reminded of several things. One of those things being that the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Now, what does this mean? Well, I believe it means that God, being sovereign over all things which even includes the evil deeds in which you do, is going to endure with you and be long-suffering with you and wait for the day of your repentance. Now, his waiting is not passive waiting, but a readiness, a readiness in his waiting to extend grace to you at exactly the right time in your life. He's not waiting for you to prove yourself to him he is waiting according to his timing. And this is proven in the next line of the verse. Look, look at what it says. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. So the extension of grace, the extension of mercy from God is based solely on and in God. If it were conditional upon you, then it wouldn't be grace or mercy. His intentions of saving you is to exalt himself. And the timing of that salvation is for his own self-exaltation. Now, you can only do that if you are a perfect being, and he is. Look at what it says the next line of this verse. It says, for the Lord is a God of justice. 
So again, let's not forget the grace and the mercy that is there and that is promised. But this next line is really important as well. In, in the context of grace and mercy, He is a God of justice. Why does He do the things He does in the way that He does them? Well, as in, in conflict with our timetable and the way that we think He should do them, why, why does He act this way? It's because of His character and His divine attributes. This is why. He is a God of justice, which means no evil ever will go unpunished. He doesn't need us to tell Him that something went wrong or somebody did something wrong to us or that there's a great evil in the land. He knows. He's aware. He's not been sleeping in Adventure Club, we, we've been reading through the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and, and all of that. And one of my favorite parts of that story is where Elijah's like, I don't know, is your God sleeping? Maybe he's on the toilet. Like, that's a paraphrase. Um, but it, it's such a great, a great reminder that our God doesn't sleep. Our God is, is never unavailable. He's always there. God knows. He knows and He will deal with it exactly as it needs dealt with, when it needs dealt with. Now, sometimes He puts it into the hearts of certain people, God's people, and even some that are not, to take action against such things that are injustices. And I would counsel you this morning to prayerfully consider how you should pursue that growing passion to fight against an injustice that God has highlighted in your heart. Pray and ask Him, God, I've had this just sense that something is so wrong here that's happening maybe in my church, in my family, in, in my, my community. God, what do I need to do about that? Look at the next line of this verse. It goes on and says, Blessed are all those who wait for Him. What is the benefit of waiting on God? Well, what does it say? You will be blessed. You'll be blessed if you wait on Him. Why? Because you get to experience the impossible God in a real way. You get to experience Him, do impossible things in your life because you waited on Him. You, you get to experience the overwhelming grace and mercy and justice of God at work. Now, in this section, there's two images of God that I think are highlighted that go along with verse 18. And then there's a third image that I think we find in this chapter, but it, it really makes up the whole last section, so I won't get into that one just yet. But there's two images here in verses uh, 18 through 26 that I want you to see. The first being that God is presented as our teacher. Look at verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. The Lord disciplines His people. He reveals Himself in the midst of their suffering. He reveals even a way out in verse 21 in the next verse. Now, one commentator says in the idea of the Lord being our teacher, he, he gives this comment, as teacher, He actually encourages and makes possible the response for which He waits. His grace is at work before repentance as well as 
after it. What a teacher he is. God does something radical in the hearts of this people. This is what happens in this section. Why is he such the the gracious Lord? Because of the transformation that's taking place. This people who would not listen and actively rejected the message of God are now, according to the text, they are a people that listen, they hear, they want to follow, they want to go with Him. What changed? What changed? Well, in John chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says these words, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Which means that the Spirit has changed the heart to listen and to follow. This is what we would say as being born again. Born again, as Jesus would teach in John chapter 3. So how can rebellion of the heart end? How can the, the stubbornness that is in your heart, how can it end? By the transformational work of God. It is by our teacher, our teacher who is working before and after our initial repentance so that we would live a lifestyle of Repentance. That the sin of our life would be highlighted and we would deal with it and we would repent of it and we would walk in truth. He is our teacher. A second image that we are given here is in verse 26. He is our physician. Look at verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and heals the wounds inflicted by His blow. When Jesus comes about 700 years later, the land of Israel will experience firsthand the healing power of God. Jesus goes all around Israel healing people with all varieties of sicknesses, all varieties of ailments, He proves repeatedly that there is no limit to his healing power. Oh, you can't see? Done. You can't walk? Done. Oh, you're dead? Get up. Like, what what can stop him? There's nothing there. So in the most improbable, the most impossible things, Jesus shows repeatedly uh, God's bigger than that. He's greater than that. And here in Isaiah 30, what is, what is promised to Judah is then fully realized in who Jesus is. Jesus is still healing wounds today. The spiritual wounds that we have can be made whole by the great physician. Also, let's not miss that this verse ends with the words, by his blow. Maybe you caught that. He heals the wound which he inflicted. Which means that God is healing something that He created, but what is the purpose of the wound? Well, it had purpose behind it. It wasn't out of hate. It wasn't out of meanness. It was out of His plan and out of His purpose. And the wounding was done to bring humility and to bring salvation to the people. It was for their ultimate good. And maybe even this morning you are feeling as though God has wounded you and you are hurting, you feel like you're, you're bleeding spiritually. But use this verse right here. Use verse 26 as a guide towards ultimate good. And the ultimate good is that you would go to the one that can't actually heal you. And that is our Savior, Jesus. Go to Him. Go to Him for healing. 
Now, like I said, there is a third image of God, and that is in really the last section that we have, 27 through 33, and we see God's fury, God's fury against the wicked, but we see that God is our warrior. He is our warrior as the third image that is here. I want you to notice in these verses, there's a theme that runs through them, and it's the theme of God's power shown through descriptors of His lips, of His tongue, of His voice, His breath. And this theme starts in verse 27. If you look at verse 27, it says, His lips are full of fury, His tongue is like a devouring fire. Then look at the next verse, 28. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck. Verse 30. His majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of His arm to be seen. Then 33, the breath of the Lord. So the fury of God will come against His enemies and His power doesn't have to be exercised in the form of weapons or in the form of muscles, but simply by His mouth. How will He deal with His enemies? His Word. The creator of all things, created by simply speaking all things into existence. I don't know if you caught that in Genesis 1, but that's pretty amazing. So, as it's been said, if you can get past the first few words of the Bible in Genesis, the rest of the book is pretty easy to understand. In the beginning, God. Oh, okay. Everything else we should see as very probable, very possible. He created all things by simply speaking it, so all God needs to do to bring wrath is to simply speak it. What a terrifying God He really is. If you're on the wrong side of that God, that should terrify you. He doesn't have to make some big thing to come up against you. All He has to do is say, done. It's over. All He has to do is speak a word of judgment, and it happens. So, so we have this picture of, of God's fury and His wrath against His enemies, but notice verse 29. Right in the middle of what's happening here, look at verse 29. It says, you shall have a song. You who? Judah, God's people. These people that go back to 18 through 26, these people who have changed and transformed hearts, you shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. In the midst of the fury, in the middle of the wrath, what do we have? We, the people of God, the people that have transformed hearts, are right in the middle of this. God's faithful people, they will be rejoicing and glad Why? Because they are kept by the rock of God. Our God will be our warrior in the midst of the downfall of this world. We will not suffer the wrath. We will not be under the fury of God that's going to be poured out on the enemies of God because the rock of Israel is our refuge. Our rock will crush the rest. But He will not crush us. Who is this rock of Israel or the rock of God? Who is this? It's Jesus Christ. 
Why did Jesus come to this earth? It's because we have sinned against God and we are in such a debt against God spiritually that there's nothing we could do to make up for that. And so Jesus came into this world as an innocent and, and, and very incapable child. Why? Because it was God's plan and His purpose and Herod tried to kill Him and Herod couldn't because you cannot overthrow God's plans. And Jesus grew up into a man that lived a completely perfect life in every thought, word, and deed. He was completely innocent before God and before man, but he was found guilty by man, sent to the cross by the Father so that he would be crushed. Why? So that the sins of the world would be put upon him and the affliction that should have went to you and me went upon him so that you could be seen as righteous before God. But Jesus did not just simply die on the cross. He rose on the third day. He rose from the grave, a bodily resurrection. He was seen by over 500 people at one time. He was known by His disciples, proving that the the sacrifice that He made on our behalf, it was good. The payment went through. Now, maybe you've had a payment in your life where you, you wrote a check and you're like, oh, Lord, please. Please, Lord, I know, I, I don't know if I got paid or not. I, just pray, I pray it goes through. But what did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. It has been paid. And the resurrection proves that, that is true. But not only did He rise from the grave, He ascends back into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And in that ascension, He promises to come again. And what does he promise to do when he comes again? He promises to bring fury with him, wrath with him to all those that are enemies of God, but he will not crush those that are his. This ascension is a promise. And all of the other promises that God has made, that Jesus has made, they have come true. So why would we not trust in that one? He is the most trustworthy. And in Revelation 19, as we had read this morning, verses 6 through 9, let me read this one more time for you so you you feel the weight of what is being promised to us here. John has this vision. He sees this. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. You could amen that. That's fine. Uh, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This supper that is promised right here, this supper is for the children of God, not for rebels against Him, but for redeemed rebels, because that's what you are. You are stubborn against God. You have been rebellious against Him, but not anymore, saint. You've been changed. 
Sinners. Sinners that have been transformed by the work of God that are walking in obedience and faith. These are the ones that are welcome at the table. Yes, Jesus ate with sinners. Praise God he did. And in the future, in heaven, he will eat with redeemed sinners. It is for those that have been kept by the rock of God. It it is those that find hope in him. These are the ones that are welcome to the table. This marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to end with giving you three things to guard against. From this chapter, I think are quite applicable to our lives. And what do, we, what do we do with Isaiah 30? Let me give you three things to guard against. First of all being, I want you to guard against deviating from the Word of God. Jeremy had us in just a time of prayer about, about the Word and focusing our minds and hearts upon the Word. This is what Isaiah 30 is getting at too. Don't deviate from the Word of God. When you're tempted to wander off into some other idea, some other, other thought that's opposed to God's Word, what do you have in place in your life that's going to help you guard against that? Second thing, guard against accepting your reasonable ways, which are actually opposed to God's improbable ways. Let me pose it to you in a question. I think it's helpful. Does God have the right to surprise you? Does he have the right to blow your mind this week with what he does? The answer is yes, but do you live that way? Are you going to live that way? That yes, I'm going to allow God to blow my mind this week. Which goes back to the very first thing that I mentioned about your prayer life. What are the prayers which you're going to pray this week? Are your prayers going to be focused on avoiding danger, uh, avoiding discomfort, or are you going to pray, God, your ways are improbable. Your ways always prove how great you are, so God, surprise me. Surprise me with maybe this, this relationship thing, this unforgiveness thing, this, this physical thing. God, surprise me. And the last thing, guard against impatience with God by reminding yourself of His faithfulness. I think this is what is highlighted here in Isaiah 30, is that we see a rebellious, stubborn people that are impatient with God. They don't want to really follow the Word. They don't want anything to do with the, with the prophet of God. They think that their ways are better than His ways, and so what do they do? They, they create a self-savior, and God promises failure. So remind yourself, remind yourself that He is faithful. This is what God does to them here. He, he proves again who He is and the fact that He is the gracious Lord, the Lord of grace, the Lord of mercy. He is also our warrior. He fights for us. He is faithful to do such a thing. Would you spend just a few moments this morning in contemplation, in meditation, in prayer about what God is calling you into, what he's wanted to lead you into, or the things maybe you have been denying he has been calling you into. If you want to come to the front and just take a different posture in your prayer, I invite you to do that this morning. If you need somebody to pray with you, grab that person sitting beside you or come to one of the elders and and we'll pray with you as well. 
let's just take a few moments to focus our hearts, our minds upon what, is, what does God want? What does he desire? Are there things in my heart that are rebellious and stubborn against him, against other people? Do those things need dealt with this morning? Let's spend just a few moments and then I'll pray for us.